Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church of Imperial Valley. We would love to help you plan your visit, so we encourage you to visit our website at www.cccciv.org for service times and our events calendar. Or get the app. You'll find the Christ Community Church IV mobile app in your app store for Apple or Android devices. If you have your Bible, why don't you pull out your Bible and open up your Bible to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, I don't want to shortchange that offering being passed. As you're turning there, remember we're looking at a general outline of three different stages that John is instructed to write about from Jesus in the book of Revelation. And we need to remember that these three different stages mainly write the things which you have seen, which is an account of Jesus in his glory in Revelation chapter 1, write the things which are, which is an account of church history, and these letters written to actual local churches of that day, and the things which will be hereafter, which we begin in Revelation chapter 4. As we follow this general outline, it's important to remember that the reason why Jesus wrote this, or sent these letters, the reason why John wrote this and was given this incredible revelation, unveiling by Jesus is so that it could impart hope to those who are being persecuted, so that we would have hope in our faith, that we would know and see that when all is said and done, it doesn't matter how difficult life might be today and the struggles and trials you might be experiencing today, we get to see the end of the story and Jesus prevails and the church prevails with him. Amen? Amen. So let's take a look at this in Revelation chapter 2. Pick it up where we left off last week. Remember, we looked at the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus, the word literally means desirable, right? And that was the beginning of the church. So that church had left its first love. It had grown cold in its love for the Lord. It was busy, 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 but it had forgotten the reason why they were doing what they were doing. And then we looked at the church of Smyrna, and it meant bitter, literally. But if you look at that word, it also is the root word for myrrh, which is an incredible indication of what this church was experiencing, the persecuted church there right after the, the second century began. So the persecuted church. So now what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at the church of Pergamos beginning in verse 12 of chapter 3. Read this with me. It says, And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I'll give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So let's look at this church of Pergamos, the third church that we're going to be studying. It literally means objectionable marriage. That's what the word literally means, an objectionable marriage. And I know some of you are looking at the person next to you thinking, if you only knew, right? If you only knew the person I married. But what this is speaking of is the fact that during this time, the church is going to intermingle with the world. And this church during those days wasn't staying true to Jesus. It was compromising in many different ways. It found itself kind of 
inching its way a little closer and closer to worldliness. And so it had really truthfully been married to the world, this church in Pergamos. Now, the church, it was the birthplace, said to be the birthplace of Zeus in Greek mythology. So there was like a 150-foot monument, and smoke ascended from this thing all of the time. The, the city of Pergamos had actually built altars and temples unto the Caesars and worshipped man rather than worshipping God. And so they had some issues there in their culture that they had to deal with. But this is what Jesus says to write to the pastor. Remember, that's what angel means. Write to the pastor of the church of Pergamos, and he says this, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Isn't it fitting that we have Gideons here this morning and we're gonna talk about Jesus having the sharp two-edged sword. Jesus having the word. So we see here that the revelation that Jesus gives of himself, the partial revelation, is that he has the power to convict. He has the power to convict through his word. He's able to do that. Now, Curtis, he, he read Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. Let me read that to you again. It says, for the word of God is living, or it's alive, and it's sharper, or it's powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, how many of you guys have a bookshelf filled with books that really are no longer even worth owning? Any of you? I mean, how many of you guys have books about Y2K still, right? How many of you bought books about the Da Vinci Code and why the Da Vinci Code was wrong? Right, And we have purpose-driven life, and we have your best life now, and all of these books that really they have nothing to do with where we're at in our culture today. Those books, those writings are dead, but God's word is alive. It is just as important and vital to the growth of the believer today as the very first day it was penned. It's alive. And if you want your life to come to life, if you want vitality in your Christian walk, you have to be in the word. It says that it is powerful. The word is energis in the Greek. It energizes, literally. It breathes life into those who will read it, who will study it, who will dig into it. Think about this just for a moment. The power that is in God's word. God speaks the word, let there be light, and creation takes place. That's amazing, is it not? God speaks the word to Lazarus, come forth from the grave, and Lazarus comes forth from the grave. He raises the dead with his word. Is that not amazing? He holds a little girl by the hand, Jairus' daughter, and he whispers into her ear, Talitha Kumai, little girl arise, and she rises from the dead. The power that is in God's word. And that power is available for you today to open up, you hold this. You hold this in your hands and we take it for granted. We hear stories about what Curtis just shared. In Mexico, one little New Testament saves an entire family. Pastors being one to the Lord just by reading the word. And we in America, we take this for granted, the power that is in God's word. Why? It's because when we open up the scriptures and we begin to read, we don't like what we're reading because it shines a light in our hearts. It exposes our sin and our wickedness. It shows us areas in our life that we need to work on and we would rather close the book than do business with God and say, God, have your way in my life. If your life feels dead and lifeless, it's your own fault. It's because you haven't been in the word because when you're in the word, Jesus will convict you through his word and he will breathe life into you through his word. And it's available for you this morning. Listen to this text in James chapter 1. 
James chapter 1, James writes this. After he says that you should be doers of the word and not hearers only, he says a reason why. He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who he's looking at himself, observing his natural face in a mirror. And he observes himself, and then he goes away, and immediately he forgets the kind of man that he is. When you just read the word or you listen to the word but you don't do the word, it's like ignoring the issues that you have when you see them in the mirror. And I guarantee you that there isn't a single person in this room who came here this morning before looking in a mirror to make sure that you are all right before you came. But in our spiritual life, When we open up the scripture and we read clearly what God's will is for our lives, how he wants us to live, what he wants us to do, the parent he wants us to be, the husband or the wife that he wants us to be, the servant of God that he wants us to be, we read that and then we close it and we go away, we're ignoring the stuff in our teeth, we're ignoring the hair that's out of place, I don't have that problem any longer, we're ignoring all of those imperfections, it's like you forget who God just revealed to you who you are. And he's trying to work in your life. And he's trying to make you the person that he knows you're capable of being. And that happens through the word. He says, I'm the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And my sword has the ability to convict. If you'll just open it up, you'll find conviction, yes. And no one likes pruning when the pruning process is happening. But when God cuts away those imperfections and prunes those limbs that are dying anyway, there's more vitality and more growth and more fruit that abounds to your account when you allow God to convict and to prune and to breathe life into you. He says, I'm the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, but he goes on, and now he's gonna move into this commendation that he has for this church. And he says to the church of Pergamos, I see that you have held fast my name. Despite all of your imperfections, I see that you're clinging to my name. Listen to what he says. Verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. We already talked about Zeus's altar and we talked about those temples for Caesars. We, I see how Satan has a stronghold in your city. I know that that's where you dwell and I know that you've held fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. We don't know a whole lot about Antipas. His name literally means against all. The man who was against all, who was against everyone. And it says there that he was martyred. Some commentators actually believe that he was boiled alive, fried alive because of his faith. Because he wouldn't compromise in the midst of a city that was all about compromise. So he says, I see that you held fast to my name. I see that you're clinging to this. And now he's going to go into this correction for the church. Okay, I commend you that there are those who are dying for their faith. I commend you that you've held fast. But... I have a few things against you because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. You see this church in Pergamos, they had compromised doctrine. They had given room for false teaching to enter into their assembly and it should never have been permitted. What did Balaam do? You can read this later on tonight for the sake of time. I'm not gonna read it all, but read Numbers 22 through 25 and I'll kind of paraphrase it for you just a little bit. But Balak, the king of the Moabites, he comes to Balaam because Balaam is a prophet. And he hears that Balaam, whoever you bless is blessed. 
And whoever you curse is cursed. So here are all these Israelites. They've been set free by God from Egypt. And now they're coming towards us. And I'm afraid they're going to lick up every resource that we as the Moabites own. Therefore, I want you to curse them for me. Because I believe if you curse them, they will not be fruitful. They will not be able to take over our land. And so Balaam says, let me pray about this for the night. And he says, God says I can't go. Besides that, I can only speak what God puts on my heart to speak. But Balak doesn't give up. He's persistent, you see. And he sends an even larger delegation. He says, I'm going to honor you with more riches than you can ever imagine. If you will just come and if you will curse these people of Israel. So Balaam goes, and that's where we have that story where he's on his donkey, and the donkey stops and speaks because the angel of the Lord, Jesus, is standing in the path saying, Balaam, you should not go and do this. He beats the donkey, and the donkey says, why are you beating me? Have I ever done you wrong? And then Balaam's eyes are opened, and he sees Jesus standing in the path saying, you should not go. But Balaam goes. And he meets with Balak, and Balaam takes him up on top of this cliff, and he says, look at the children of Israel. You see how numerous they are? Curse them now. And so Balaam says, well, let's prepare seven altars, and we're going to sacrifice seven oxen and seven rams, one on each of the altars. And then let's inquire of the Lord. And so they do this, and Balaam goes, and he looks over the people camped. And as you read in the Old Testament, you'll see that the people camped in a very distinct pattern by their tribes, and by their numbers. And the way their camp was situated, if they were to march single file, they would create the shape of a cross. And so Balaam goes and he overlooks all of the children of Israel, and he sees the shape of a cross, and he opens his mouth to begin to curse, and the only thing that will come out is blessings. And he says, this people are so numerous, there's no way to stop them. And Balak says, what are you doing? I asked you to curse them. Here, come with me. We're going to go to a different mountain, and we're going to look from the other mountain. Maybe then God will let you curse them. So they go to the other mountain, and the same situation, the same things happen. Seven altars, seven rams, seven oxen. Balaam inquires of the Lord. He goes to curse. He opens his mouth. This people is like a mighty lion that is going to devour and lick up the blood of their prey. And Balak says, what are you doing? I, why, why, I would rather you just not say anything at all than bless them. I brought you here to curse them. Just keep your mouth shut. And Balaam says, I can only speak what God has told me to speak. So Balak, still being persistent, a third time says, let's go to a third plateau. Again, he overlooks the children of Israel. He sees the shape of a cross. And all he can do is say that this nation is a mighty nation and they're going to conquer whomever is in their way. Balak's, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? I don't understand. And this is what Balaam says. I told you I can only speak what God tells me to speak. But if you come with me, I will counsel you in a way that you can cause the children of Israel to bring a curse upon themselves. And he tells Balak, what you do is you send your women in to seduce the men of Israel. And as they do that, they'll begin committing sexual immorality, adultery, and fornication. And your gods will be mingled in with them, and they'll begin worshiping those gods, and it will bring a curse upon them. I can't speak the curse, but if you follow my instructions, the curse will come. 
And this is what it says in Numbers chapter 25. It says, The people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. What was the teaching of Balaam? The teaching of Balaam was, you know what? You don't need to worry about what God's word says. Maybe that's an old saying. Maybe that really isn't relevant for today's time. What's the big deal if you just live together? What's the big deal if you just allow a little bit of sin in? What's the big deal? God's word, that was written thousands of years ago. Do you think it still matters what God's word says today? And so Balaam told Balak, seduce the Israelites and cause them to compromise what the word says. Cause them to ignore God's word. And now here we see this. Pergamos is being charged with the same thing. Verse 14 again, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. I don't want this false teaching in my church. I value my church and I love my church and I want the best for my church and so you should not allow this teaching in. Same thing today, my friends. When we allow those who say that the law is the way to go to come into our church and to preach that we need to go back to a works-based religion, that is not of the Lord. It should not be allowed in our church. Hebrew roots movement should not be allowed in our church. That we have to abide by a dietary law. We have to keep certain feasts. That should not be allowed in our church because all of those were just a shadow of Jesus. And now that Jesus has come, We no longer need to worship in the shadows because we can worship in the substance and the substance is Christ. You see? Why are we allowing false doctrine into our churches? When it says there that the anger of the Lord was aroused in Numbers 25, it means in the Hebrew that his nose had turned red. Sometimes when you're angry, your face, it turns flush, does it not? But that's not the only time when your face turns red is when you're angry. It also, your nose turns red when you've been weeping. And so it's a picture of the fact that when they allowed this teaching and when they strayed from what God's word had said, that God was heartbroken and angry over sin. And I don't know about you, but I don't ever want, I don't ever want God to do, or God to feel that way on my account. I don't want God to look down on the way that I'm living my life in the word, through the word, and for him to be grieved and weeping over my condition. He was angry. And then he says this, verse 15, he says, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. We saw that last week. The Nicolaitans were those who lorded their authority over, and they taught men that it really didn't matter how you lived your Christian life because you were covered with grace and mercy anyway. God says, I hate that. Jesus says, I hate that. Verse 16, he says, repent. The word means to have a change of mind, to change the way you think about something. You're living one way. You're allowing a false doctrine in. You're allowing a false teaching in. He says, change your mind about that and turn back to me. Repent or I'm going to come quickly, suddenly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I do not want to touch that battle. I know that that is a fight that I will never win. So I need to surrender now. And I need to say, God, convict me through your word now so that you don't have to do battle with me with the word of your mouth later on. Revelation 19, we'll see that. 
We'll see that eventually. God, I want to surrender to you now. I repent now. I change my mind about the way I'm living now. And I want to live my life the way your word calls me to live my life. Repent or I'll come to you quickly. I'll fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him hidden manna to eat. And I'll give him a white stone. And on that stone a new name written which no one knows except himself. So we see the correction. Now we see the motivation that they have. And he says, if you repent, I'm going to give you the hidden manna. I'm going to give you a white stone. And I'm going to write upon that stone a new name. And you're the only one who will know what this name means. It's amazing because in the 6th century when the Babylonians came and they ransacked Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple, the prophet Jeremiah, he had gone in and he had taken the manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant under the mercy seat. He took that manna and he went and he hid it in the hills, in the clefts, in the crevices of Mount Nebo. And the rabbis taught that when the Messiah would come, the Messiah would go and would find that manna and bring that manna back. And so what Jesus is saying here is saying, I'm the one who's going to find the manna. More specifically, in John chapter 6, Jesus is saying, I am the manna. I'm the bread of life. I am the Messiah that you've been waiting for. I am the one who brought bread and offered my body broken for you, but you didn't see it. And you didn't receive it. You should have, but you didn't. Jesus says, I am the manna. I am the bread. I am the Messiah who has come. He says, I'm going to give you a white stone. That's important for two reasons. In those days, when a friendship was struck, they would exchange these white stones. And it it was a sign of friendship that would last forever. And so Jesus is saying, I'm your friend. I'm giving you my friendship forever. But also, the second reason why this is important is because at a trial, when a judge would decide guilt or innocence, if a man or a woman was found guilty, they would receive a black stone. If they were found innocent, they would receive a white stone. And so Jesus is saying, if you repent, if you hold fast my name, you're going to be declared innocent before the Father. I don't know about you, but I need that. I need to be declared innocent by God because I know the condition of my heart. This is what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of Jesus by the Spirit of our God. We were those people. We were that list. But when we stand in the presence of God, if we've come to Christ and exercised our faith in him, we don't have to stand there in our own righteousness. If we stood there based upon our own merits and our own works, we would receive the black stone, would we not? But when we've been washed and sanctified and justified by the work of Jesus upon the cross, when we say yes to Jesus, we receive the white stone and we're declared innocent and we can stand there in the presence of God without doubt. Now, amen. He also says there that you're going to receive a new name that no one knows except you. It's like you're receiving a pet name. Like God is naming you. Now, In the Bible, we see people who have been renamed over and over and over again, have we not? 
right? We see Abram, which means father or exalted father. His name is changed to Abraham, which means father of many nations. We see Jacob, whose name means heel snatcher. His name changed to Israel, which means governed by God. We see Simon. His name is changed to Peter, which means a rock, a pebble, a rock, a stone. We see Paul or Saul, whose name literally meant to inquire of God, changed to Paul, which means humble. Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church in Imperial Valley. Christ Community Church has campuses in El Centro, Calexico, and Brawley with services in English and in Spanish. Your kids are going to love our kids' church. Plus, we have a lively youth ministry and young adults group. You're welcome to call the church office at 760-337-9400 with your questions. Or leave us a message on the Christ Community Church IV mobile app, the cccivy.org website, or direct message us on social media. We are really looking forward to meeting you. So again, the website is www.cccivy.org or call 760-337-9400 so we can plan your visit.